An awe-inspiring, exhaustive list of world records defines Dr. Jeff Wilson. Are you ready? The first and only wind-assisted crossing of the Sahara Desert in 42 days. The first across Torres Strait by kiteboard. The fastest unsupported crossing of Greenland south to north in 18 days. The fastest solo unsupported coast-to-coast -coast crossing of Antarctica in 53 days. The first summit of Dome Argus, the highest point of the polar plateau and the coldest naturally occurring place on Earth. The longest solo unsupported polar journey in human history, covering 5,306 kilometres kite skiing in Antarctica. And just in September, the first man to cross the Simpson Desert solo using wind power. And when the wind didn't blow, he dragged his kite-powered buggy by a rope around his waist and pulled it over more than 350 sand dunes. Constantly squeezing every drop out of life, Dr. Jeff Wilson, a family man, a vet, and a lifelong adventurer. Awesome, and that's the, the Australian Geographic Awards for his achievements as an adventurer was just presented, which is a wonderful achievement. So, hey, Church, it's a wonderful pleasure for, for us to have uh, Jeff with us tonight. He is a delightful person, uh, just easy to talk to, very warm, very caring, very engaging, and very challenging. So I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to be challenged to, to go a little further than I thought I could go. Uh, not, maybe not the, the Antarctica, but, but a little further than I thought I could go. And so what I love about Dr. Jeff is the stories that he tells. They're not just relevant to those, those of us amongst us who are adventurers. Okay, give me a wave if you're an adventurer. Come on, just own it now. There's a, there's a few of us. A few of us are like, yeah, not on his level, but I'm, a, I'm adventurous. Okay. All right, you don't have to be an adventurer to enjoy tonight. I, I believe God has wired uh, Dr. Jeff up in a way to experience things and then relate to us how they can relate to our everyday life. So see if you pass, why don't you stand to your feet, put your hands together and welcome hey, Jeff Wilson tonight. Let's go. Thank you, John. Thank you. Grab a seat. Thank you, musicians. We'll get you to grab a seat as well. Hey, so good to be here. I always feel honoured to be in C3. I think I've, I've spoken all over the world, and in C3 I feel more like a rock star than anywhere. I've, I've got Jake looking after me, Liv dropping me off, um, popcorn and chocolates. Unbelievable. I'm, I'm spoiled. I'll be too soft to go back out there. <laughs> Uh, but absolute honour to be here. Your culture in this church is something to be really proud of. Like just the way you uh, look after your pastors and the way the pastors look after you. <laughs> your love for Jesus is paramount. And I think tonight all I'm trying to do is probably get you to see the secret to a lot of my success in the field has probably been uh, from this high, I saw myself the way I feel God saw me. You know, a lot of the time... We don't see ourselves the way God sees us. And it must be frustrating for him to see the self-doubt and the self-hate and the unkind words that we tell ourselves when we're his creation. Because essentially, if we're his creation, when we speak badly to ourselves, we're speaking badly to him. So tonight, if the one gem I can get you to come away with is just to see yourself like that little child that he brought into the world that he was proud of. And then that will open up doorways to supernatural 
greatness in you. And please don't feel like you have to go and drag a sled across Antarctica. It's just, I'm not very good at anything else. I wish I was good at football or badminton, something that was less lonely and cold, but I'm just good at dragging heavy objects over long distances. So that's my lot in life. Please don't feel like you have not led an extraordinary life because you have not been chased by a grizzly bear or nearly killed by a crevasse or an avalanche. That is just an insane thing to do with your life. But what justifies it is just being able to bring back one little piece of advice and magic that we can apply to your lives and see some of that supernatural resilience come into your life. So just before we go on, we'll go to that first slide. Who, next one for me. Who, who am I? Obviously, I'm a multi-part being. I, I have a very sort of weird life. I step out of the veterinary life where one minute I might be discussing a poodle's bowel habits, and then th the next day I'm talking to the owner of a multinational who wants me to take him to Antarctica. Um, so my, my world is bizarre. It changes. I might you know, go see a horse that's got a sore foot and then get in the car and take a call about a new sled that we're designing to cross another great vast wilderness somewhere. So I'm constantly shifting and changing gear. But probably the thing that I'm most proud of, if we go to the next slide, is that I've married this beautiful girl, Sarah. We met at Queensland University. She was playing squash with a girl called Begonia, who I thought was a flower until I met her. And uh, I remember thinking, wow, this girl is amazing. I'll, I'll uh, want to get to know this girl. That was when I was 19, she was 18. We've been married for 30 years together for 34. And despite all the ups and downs, I think the friendship is stronger now than it ever has been. So for you young ones, if you've loved and lost, don't give up. If you're in a relationship that's not perfect, please don't give up. There's been time. Gromit. So Jake's got a, what, a three-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, you said. Um, these guys, probably, this is probably Kid at five, Jabba at six, and Jade at ten. And little Krusty at the time was about five. She's now a box of ashes on my desk, which is very precious to me. The best dog I've ever had, Krusty, the wonder dog. Uh, we'll go to the next slide. They're best mates. So all of that time when I thought, wow, these kids are going to kill each other or we'll kill them first. You're driving, you know, with your hand in the back trying to beat somebody because there's so much noise coming from the back seat. You risk a rollover in the car and you think these guys will never be friends. It can happen. They can get there. And I've adventured with all of them. There's times where things have gone horribly wrong. I remember um, having an absolute row with Java because she refused to sleep in a tent. We are in Zimbabwe on the side of the road and uh, about 20 Africans had come out of the night just to watch this show as we were making camp. And Java's uh, a very difficult 16-year-old saying, you're going to get us killed, Dad. This is not fun. I'm not sleeping on the ground. You're going to get stabbed during the night. And I lost my temper and yelled at her, sometimes I just want to stab you myself. And she, who knows that a teenage girl would never let you forget this. So she, she brings it out and there was such a, a row that I turned around 
And this is better than Sipcon TV for this village. The whole village was just watching this going on. During the night, she rolled over and kicked the side of the Land Rover. The alarm went off and everybody started yelling. I had Simon and Jade in one tent. They were married at the time. Uh, my son Kit by himself and Sarah and I in another tent. Everybody's yelling and I'm yelling over the top trying to say, it's just Java, she's kicked the alarm. Java's fast asleep with lights blaring. Anyway, I get out, I open the car, turn the alarm off, check her, make sure she's still breathing because there was no air in the Land Rover. And on the way back, everything calms down. I step on about a three-inch thorn that goes straight through the side of my foot, scream out, and everybody's imagining machete-wielding bandits. Everybody starts yelling. I'm running around with a thorn in my foot, trying to calm it down, all from this mad teenager who just days before had nearly got me killed because she refused to stay in camp, decided she'd go to the toilet block and have a shower, pretty herself, and ignore Dad's warning about a line, a line that was in the area that had killed already. I walked the 300 metres to the toilet block to get her and past this big bush and had this incredible supernatural warning of impending death. All the hairs on the back of my neck prickled up and I yelled for Java to come, come, come. We ran back to the Land Rover, drove to where I was, and in the five minutes it took to get Java out of the toilet block into the Land Rover, all my prints were covered by the pugs of a large lioness. When we got the game warden to come, he said, yeah, you can see a split in one of her toes. He said, I know this lion, she's killed before. You're very, very lucky. So my beautiful girl very nearly got me eaten and uh, she still continues to do so at uh, 22, 23. But they are best mates. Let's go on. Next slide. So obviously, a bunch of adventures over time. The Sahara Desert was the first one where I had to build a team. A lot of them up to that point had been either a solo or a duo. This one was a big team. We had four guys in buggies, two Kiwis, two Aussies, and then uh, a team of nine support. Over the next 42 days, we traveled through six African countries. One of them, Mauritania, had just had four beheadings of four tourists that had been caught at a music festival by Al-Qaeda bandits, and the British government wouldn't negotiate, so they beheaded them on YouTube. So going back in there was really stressful for the team. Uh, the Western Sahara, the Mauritania section, had 700 kilometres of landmine sand, and every village we went into, there were kids with no limbs, there were vehicles blown up, camels dead by the roadside. So it was very, very real pressure. Over that time frame, 42 days, nine of the men on that group had full breakdowns, emotional, spiritual, physical. What was unique was that the four men that didn't were a fellow called Lance from the North Coast, who I think is part reptile, he'll be at your petting zoo for sure. He's got a very, very slow heart rate. I don't think he's ever had stress. He was never gonna have a breakdown. And then my uncle, my father, and myself, so all last name Wilson. And it was the first kind of penny drop moment that there is something about resilience and tenacity and grit that is familial in my family. And trying to understand what it is, because if we understand what creates resilience, it's something we can teach. So over the next few adventures, if we keep going, obviously my teeth were cut on what we called the pink polar journey. You'll see the sled coming up. It was a, a thing called the boob sled, 
which has moulded off my very patient wife's cleavage to create a sled to raise funds for the McGrath Foundation. So um, you do need a glass of wine before you ask your wife if you can do that for her. People go, how did you get Sarah to agree to do that? So well, it involved a drop of red and then uh, begging her to help me raise money for the McGrath Foundation. Um, this journey was an attempt to cross Antarctica from the coast, so from sea ice through the South Pole to the other side. In the aircraft flying down there, I was in secondhand gear with my bright pink boob sled, bright pink jumpsuit, and in, a in an aircraft jam full of Antarctic old faithfuls, men and women that had worked down there for 10, 15 years. Next to me was a French polar explorer, Faisal Hanesh, who also was going for the same record. He was sponsored by Bitcoin at the time, had a beautiful down jacket, beautiful new skis. I had sled envy. If you were going to put money on someone, you wouldn't have put it on the Aussie from the Gold Coast with the boob sled. I looked like a comedy act. In fact, I didn't realise there were 10 guys working for a thing called the White Desert, and they had a betting syndicate going. Nine of them bet for the Frenchman. They put money on it. One guy bet for me, and he, he had come to me and given me a balloon with a girl called Liv written on it. Just her name. Said, listen, my friend Liv is in Cape Town Hospital. She's fighting for her life with breast cancer. I understand what you're doing. Can you blow this up, say a prayer for her when you get to the South Pole? So the other nine guys didn't think I was even going to get there. But this guy understood I was there for something bigger than myself. So when I got to the South Pole, I blew this balloon up, said a prayer for Liv, and then popped it and put it away because I probably would have breached a few environmental laws let, letting a balloon go down there. But it was in my jumpsuit when I finished the journey back home, I pulled this broken balloon with her name on it and thought about her. The phone went a couple of days later and it was the guy from White Desert calling me saying, hey, I just wanted to let you know, thank you for carrying Liv all the way across your journey. And I said, listen, honestly, I didn't carry Liv, she carried me. So I broke through things down there uh, that wouldn't have happened if I'd just been there for records. So day 17, the French explorer, with a much better pedigree than me, was airlifted out, and it was all over. He'd given up on day 17. He went back the following year. The same thing happened. So better prepared, better skilled, better funded. So there's something absolutely magic about getting your purpose right, and we'll come into that shortly. Let's keep going through them. Obviously, some challenges on that journey, including losing food and understanding when you lose something like a precious resource like food. I had 90 days food. I'd lost uh, a massive amount of food. So it meant that I had about 52 days, 53 days worth of food left. I had to do it in that time frame or starve. The Americans supporting me were saying, listen, you need food, you have to take food. I said, I'm not taking food. I said, if you make it in that time frame, you will smash the record of the most brutal and tough polar explorer on planet Earth, Borges Land. So you think you're a vet from the Gold Coast, you're not going to take food, you're going to break Borges Land's record. Absolutely, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I ended up doing. So 53 days. That record now has stood for nine years. 
had seven explorers try and better it. One guy paid with his life. That's how hard it is to do 53 days. Very, very difficult. So what is it about me, 80 kilos dripping wet, the average male, I think God made me average as a bit of a laugh. If I was built like Shorty this morning and I'm doing this, people go, well, he's big. If you had feet like Ian Thorpe and you swim well, well, yeah, that's it. But I'm average and you know that everything I do in terms of developing resilience is teachable because it's not a genetic right of mine. Okay, let's keep going. Frostbite absolutely kills. I lost a kite and I made this cardinal mistake at the end of a storm of connecting the kite to the sled. I'd walked downwind and buried the end of the kite, got it inflated, ran the lines back to the sled, clipped it onto the side of the sled and mistakenly turned my back. I heard a roar and I turned around and like a thousand white horses, there was a wind bullet coming across the polar plateau and my brain told me that imminent death was coming before I even understood it. And I started to run towards the sled to jump on it before the kite could take off. I'm halfway back to the sled and the wind bullet hits with a flurry of snow. The kite launches. Next minute, my pink boob sled is upside down, moving at about 80 kilometres an hour towards me. Now, I have a choice. I either step out of the way and don't break my spine or I jump on this and risk breaking a leg. But if I don't grab that sled, my satellite phone's in there, my tracker's in there, all my food, I'm going to die of exposure in the next few hours. So I jump on this sled and we're careering with an upside down sled with two drag marks from the nipples on the snow. Who knows, nipples drag badly on the snow. Doing about 80K towards the edge of the continent. And amazingly, we do a full spin and the lines come through, cut through my jacket, cut through underneath me, and they hit the one bit of metal on that whole sled, which is where the runners join the underside of the Kevlar. There's one tiny little piece of metal and all four lines cut and the kite takes off. So I survived to fight another day, but it meant that I then didn't have that kite size. So the next day I'm running too big a kite for the conditions, which meant I had to run it high and it kept pulling my jacket up. All day I'm stuffing my shirt back in. I now only ever use a bib and brace. This was the old days where I had a jacket and pants and during the day the whole midsection froze. When I stopped at night I took my kite harness off and the metal hit something that sounded like metal and I realised what it had hit was my stomach which was frozen like a block of meat. Over the next six weeks the pen knife was out. Let's get that hideous thing off there. <laughs> um, doing a little bit of surgery with the Leatherman during that time. Going on to the next journey, we go one more slide. Amazing transition in this young man, Simon Goodburn. I've known him since I was 13. And when he was 13, we did this to another young fellow, Jake, yesterday. I took him for a sail off the Gold Coast and we put him up the mast. He was, he was a cocky little fellow back then and uh, put him right up the mast and he's swinging like this, put him back to the deck and he promptly spewed over the side. And I reminded him yesterday because little Jake, one of our pastor's sons, we put him up the mast and he held his lunch. Um, so I was winding Simon up saying, Jake didn't vomit, you vomited when you were 13. But this guy starts sniffing around my daughter. Uh, he's 21, 
now and my daughter's 16. And I come home and Sarah said, um, Simon wants a coffee with you tomorrow. I said, why, why would he want a coffee with me? This guy's 21, I don't want a coffee with him. And I know what he's been like. He's been a model in Europe. He's been a naughty boy. He hadn't come back to Christ till quite late. And he'd been up to no good in Europe. And we knew too much because the families are friends. I didn't want him within a kilometre of my daughter. Sarah said, well, you can, go, you can go that road and they'll go underground. Or we set some pretty clear guidelines. So we ran the hot bath. This is where all our big decisions are made. Sarah's down one end of the bath, I'm in the other with a notebook, and we set up 10 really clear rules for this relationship to go forward. Open door policy, nothing below the neck. Like, I would have been a nightmare. Nightmare father-in-law. And then I reminded him that when a father says to you, you heard a hair on my daughter's head, I will remove your testicles. That's the figure of speech. For me, I said, Simon, it's what I do for a living. <laughs> so he sat there, he sat there looking at me as I, in the cafe, I explained this to him, showed him the rules, and then rolled open my father's surgical kit. My father's a vet. I said, listen, we just have to do one slight alteration. You take a little bit of skin off your old fella and we stitch it to somewhere else. The only downside is that you have to pee like a girl until the marital night. The night before marriage, we snippy snip and everything's back to normal. And he loved that girl so much that he agreed to the procedure. And I said, wow, you really do love her, don't you? Anyway, during the dating period, he joins me. I figured if I exhausted him, he would keep his hands off my daughter. So he's with me crossing from Australia to Papua New Guinea, where 80 kilometres from the coast, he, he taps out. He's like, I'm done, I'm finished. And we're talking about the bigger, stronger version of me. He's 100 kilos, broader, better looking, incredibly talented. Whatever we do that takes me six months to learn, he'll learn in a month. So he's the new V2, the, the iPhone 14 or whatever it is of the adventure world. But he's given up. I kited back up wind to him and I sat next to him and said, Simon, what is going on? He said, I can't feel my legs. I said, if you don't get out of this water, something's going to take your legs off. There were sharks everywhere, crocodiles everywhere. We need to keep moving. And besides, you understand that the human body has a fuse, a bit like a power overload on a house. When you're feeling that exhaustion coming, it'll trip earlier. You need to learn to ignore that at 30% and you can push it safely to 5%. 5% will get you home. Besides, if you're going to marry my girl, you're going to get to Papua New Guinea. So he managed to get back on his board and we broke the next 80 kilometres into 5 kilometres. Every 5 kilometres, I'd sit with him, we'd rub his legs out, keep moving again. And he inched forward till he finally got to the beach and collapsed. Five years later, he's my partner crossing Greenland. We're trying to break the Norwegian record for the fastest south to north. It was a brutal journey. Absolutely nothing went our way. We trained well, we had the best gear, but we were getting our backsides handed to us by the environment. Warm, sticky conditions, the sleds wouldn't move, and then wind in the wrong direction. And then I had what I can only describe as a mantrum. 
I'm punching this kite into the snow on about day seven. And Simon humbly walks up and says, have I upset you? I said, no, no, I know it looks like I'm upset with you. I'm not. I'm upset with the circumstance. And this is what we call a pound the ground moment. That point in time where as a Christian person, you have the ability to scream at your father and say, I would like a redeal. I don't like that breast cancer diagnosis. I don't like the fact that the doctor tells me I'm only going to last six months. I demand a redeal. And too often as Christians, we walk down the crush towards the captive bolt, like the cattle in the abattoir, and just agree when things don't go our way. Oh, shucks. And then walk down, turn the corner, bang, and it's over. I want you to be that cow that goes absolutely ballistic, climbs over six rungs and heads for the highway. That's who we should be. You have the ability to change your circumstance. And I punched that ground and said, Simon, I'm not upset with God. I'm not railing with God. I'm just demanding that he move some weather systems for us. It's not too much to ask. A low pressure here, a high pressure here, a little bit of snow over here, and away we go. Over the next seven days, we broke a bunch of records, but most importantly, covered 1,120 kilometres, more than a duo has ever covered in a polar region in one week. And it set us up for a win. This guy, five years after tapping out in the Torres Strait, not one single complaint, not one argument, for 18 brutal days, finished stronger than me as we waited for a pickup by Husky. We could hear the little Huskies in the distance, and it was a glorious thing to see. Huskies picked us up and took us back to civilization. So let's keep cracking on through. Okay, a little bit of bear talk. So for those of you who have elected not to go to schoolies tonight, I applaud you. My son was 17, and I said, Kit, I don't want you going to schoolies. I would love to take you away to Alaska, and we'll do a, a really nice, easy, cruisy adventure. I promise Sarah it wouldn't be stressful, be nice and easy. And we landed, if we go to the next slide, on a lake right at the top of the Brooks Range, which is the spine, pumped up two kayaks, which are not very bear-proof. Um, inflatable kayaks don't do too well when bears chew on them. And then we paddled through this raging torrent that was trying to kill us for hundreds of kilometers. And then the next slide, we were heading for this mountain to climb it. We never got there because I drowned all our comms gear and, and lost all contact with Sarah. So for four days, she had no idea where we were. I finally got the sat phone to work to let her know we were well, said we can't climb without comms, we're coming out. So the next day, we're in our tent, next slide, and we could hear bears around the tent. The river stones would move and creak as the bears walked on them. So we were aware that there were bears everywhere. But it wasn't until we met this guy, and this isn't the actual guy, because you don't take photos of bears while they're trying to eat you, um, this guy was on the side of the bank, having a nibble on some berries, and as we came around with our kayaks, he stood up. And I remember thinking, oh, that is a big animal. He would have been nine foot tall, about 450 kilos, live weight, and he looked pretty friendly until he didn't. And then he suddenly charged, moved at a pace. I couldn't believe. He was powering these legs in gravel, and there was gravel flying out like a spinning car, and he hit the river just as I thought the river was going to protect me. He hit it, surfed, and then came to a dead stop. 
literally a boat length away. And he'd hit what I can only describe as a prayer wall. I've spoken to people that have either lost friends or seen a bear attack. And a bear, if he's going to do a mock charge, it's a very short charge, doesn't burn a lot of calories, he'll just present. Look how big I am, get out of my territory. Once they've committed to kill and go for a full charge, it's very rare for them not to finish the job. So the fact that this bear was literally one stroke away from the end of my kayak, and I fully believed I was going to die in front of my son, for him to stop was a supernatural miracle. The only other time I felt a miracle like that, we were talking about this earlier, and John said, you've got to tell this story. So I'm going to honour your pastor and tell this story. The only other time that I felt somebody intervene that strongly was when I made a decision to follow Christ. At the age of 17, a bit like Jake, I'd had a, I, my family life was happy, but it was kind of uh, pretty straight-laced Baptist, and I, I just didn't feel the excitement that I feel in, say, a church like C3 Powerhouse. The same principles and good Christian people, but for me as a young man, it was a boring evidence of Christ, a boring evidence of, of God. It wasn't the God that I felt in the wilderness. So I, I had strayed. I was nowhere near God at that point. We were traveling with two mates, cycling from London to Kenya, and we're in the middle of the Sahara Desert. The first time I crossed it was on a bicycle, trying to get away from mosquitoes. Every night, you put a mozzie net over your head with four sticks and tuck it into your sleeping bag. And this, I remember this night, you could see the moon, but it was completely covered with insects trying to push each other they're trying to kick each other through the netting so they could suck your blood. And you'd wake up all anemic. I thought, I'm not going to do that tonight. We're going to cycle out to these pyramids. Saw these incredible step pyramids that predate the Giza pyramids by about a 1,000 years. So we get out there, and there's a boom gate. All three of us cycle up to this boom gate. And a relatively friendly soldier comes over and says, hey, you can't, can't be here. It's a military zone in Arabic, we kind of understood what he was saying. We were saying, listen, hey, everything in Africa is possible. Surely we can sleep somewhere. Just get away from the mosquitoes. We had about 30 villagers behind us all watching, and then suddenly the, the tension changed. You could feel something in the air, a real malevolence, and the soldier came out of a bigger pillbox, and as he was marching over, I saw him take his bayonet off his machine gun. And he holstered his bayonet. I thought, why would he be doing that if we were just talking? He came to the boom gate and started yelling in Arabic. He was very, very dark because he'd been in the desert for a long time. And his hands, I remember, were, were very, very tan. As he started yelling, he drove the gun onto my forehead and started to pull the trigger. And I remember the first round feeding into the chamber with a clunk that I felt through the bones of my head because the, the muzzle was pressed so hard onto my skull. At that time, my mother was asleep in Indonesia 11 time zones away. And she felt an audible presence say to her, your boy is about to die. You need to intercede. And she obediently slipped out in her nighty. I can imagine her on her knees next to her bed and interceded on my behalf. And this man kept pulling that trigger. I could see the trigger, trigger finger was white at the knuckle. So I understood there was pressure being applied. I couldn't understand why the gun hadn't gone off. And we backed away and cycled away, fully expecting to be sprayed in the back with machine gun fire. That night, in a dirty corral, a cattle boma, fighting off wild dogs that were trying to eat our food, 
I made a decision for Christ. <laughs> and I, my memory when I thought I was going to die was not of sadness. It was not of, oh, wow, this is over. It was I didn't get time to make the decision that I knew was right. So from that point on, I've certainly not looked back, but it was a, a bumpy start. Okay, let's go on. Keep going. I'm chewing up time here. Sorry, guys. Longest journey. We're going to run through this really quickly. Um, this is the longest solo human-powered solo journey in human history. I was attempting to get out through here. Couldn't get permission to get out through the New Zealand side. So it meant I had to cross the highest point, the coldest naturally occurring place on planet Earth, and then get into this wind flow to get all the way home. It was thought to be impossible to get wind to blow you up a feature in Antarctica. It just doesn't happen. Wind always rolls downhill in Antarctica. So to climb to 13,000 feet using kite power was deemed impossible. But the miracle happened while I was stuck halfway up this thing, and I had rung home to say, I'm done, I'm finished. And when I say I'm finished, I've spent 20 years draining down to that last 5%. That last 5% is running your breathing, it's running your digestion, it's running your blood pressure. So when I'm down to that point, I'm really done. You're not far off death at that point. And it's recognising that you're into that last 5%, that you need to stop, take some time and recalibrate. Sarah said to me at that point in time, hey, I totally understand. I know where you are at. At this point in your career, if you say you're done, you're dangerously done. I want you to come home, but double your calories tonight and let's talk in the morning. So I was at a point where it was impossible to get an aircraft to me. They could land, but then the aircraft would never take off again. So if I didn't get up the next morning, get my boots on, get moving, I wasn't coming home. What happened overnight was a supernatural regeneration. I felt like I was back probably 15% the next morning. The wind had turned 180 degrees, was blowing uphill. And I had a mad panic to get my boots on and called Sarah, said, watch the tracker, I'm moving. We've got wind going uphill. 22 hours later, I'd covered the last 120 kilometres to get to the top of the dome. The kite fell out of the sky and that was the most difficult part of the journey done. So another miracle, miracle. But hey, let's, let's go on. Um, we'll, we'll skip the frostbite, nearly lost a finger. This is not a good idea, freezing your hand. Keep going for me. Crevasses on the way home. So day 56, I made a navigational error due to fatigue and entered a zone of crevassing. So this is where ice is bending over a subterranean feature or a sub-ice feature. This is healthy ice. This is a snow bridge, which could only be inches thick. And this is healthy ice. So crossing them, your heart is in your mouth every time. If you were with a professional climber, you'd be roped up with 30 metres of rope, and if he fell in, you'd pull him out, vice versa. When you're solo, connected to a sled, you're skiing, just waiting for the sled to pull you backwards into it. So 42 crevasses over two hours, probably the most stressed I've ever been in my life. Next slide. Um, we'll buzz through these. One more. Definitely giving thanks at the end of this to be through. Okay, one last journey. Uh, last September, we'll go on again, go right through to the Simpson Desert for me. So this is a, a long relationship with a desert that's, that's one of our smaller deserts. It's a 600-kilometre-round desert. 
the largest parallel dune desert in the world. I had privately been battling with this desert for 11 years, wanting to cross it using wind power. Nobody had ever tried. Nobody's probably stupid enough to try again. But I'd been turned back three times. So we'll go to this little video that sort of tells the story better than I can. of kiting with trees. It's only 50 kilometers till the end of the dunes and the voodoo of 11 years trying to cross this desert by wind power is over. Amazing, amazing. So yeah, that's quite emotional for me because it's so close, but it's been a love affair with the desert. I feel like I know every grain of sand out there. And what's really interesting is that the first two attempts, I blended in there like an average white Aussie. We didn't approach the uh, indigenous elders for permission. The third attempt, we did everything right. Asked for permission, approached the elders, got it all lined up, and it was as if the desert just said, okay, Away you go. So very interesting. But tonight, all of this madness doesn't make sense. The time away from family, from my beautiful Sarah, my beautiful three kids, unless I can distill it down and bring some magic home that you can apply to your lives. When I get a, an Instagram message, direct message, and somebody says to me, something you said last week changed my life, changed my approach to hardship changed my approach to hard times, all of those lonely times in frozen tents where it's minus 50 degrees Celsius outside and you're wondering why makes sense. So if we can go on there, let's go through, keep going. Obviously resilience we're chasing. We, we have wrapped this resilience story into our veterinary business over the last three years. The COVID era has taught us it's not just that I talk around the country to corporate people about developing resilience, applying that to your business. I never brought it to my own company because I was always just Jeff the vet. You know, a prophet's not a prophet in his home village. I'm just Jeff, the all-round guy. But we brought it in to our business and it's radically changed. An industry with four times the suicide rate of the national average. And suicide is just a tap out. It's the ultimate tap out. If we can teach our young these tricks, there's no reason anyone should get to that point. And the double your calories and sleep eight hours, if you know anyone who's having suicidal thoughts, teach them that. When things are lost, just take a breath. So if we keep, keep going for me, 
If I look at the single biggest drivers of resilience, if we chase resilience as Christian folk, it will slip through your fingers. But if we can set up this triumvirate, three things that drive resilience, you'll find it'll come to you in waves. You'll go through things that you would never have been able to go through. The single biggest driver in my life has been purpose. If we go back to Faisal Hanesh, who's coming to Australia next week, we have a good old laugh about this storm that nearly killed us both. Who knows, shared trauma creates bonds. We talk about that storm in Antarctica. We were three kilometres from each other, and that storm was trying to turn us into strawberry jam across the snow for four solid days. The only reason that I got up and got moving at the end of the storm was I, I had a big purpose for being there. I'd met women connecting to chemotherapy. Women had had both their breasts removed. Their very nature of femininity cut away. And I saw their faces, almost like a slideshow, while I'm lying in the tent with the wind screaming at over 200 kilometres an hour outside. When I rang Sarah and said, I can't do this, she said, don't you dare give up. Get your boots back on, get outside. I saw Sarah. I saw those women. So purpose is absolutely key. If we look at the, the Japanese word ikigai, literally the reason for putting your boots on in the morning. It's a very, very powerful concept. And we now know that a lack of purpose in the human brain will accelerate aging. This is why with retirees, we often see this speed up. They retire at 65, and some of them you see a massive decline. So I'm really in favor of the elder system but when our retirees retire, we give them a purpose. Church is incredible for that. It's protective. But at a cellular level, a human without purpose begins to decline. It's the way you're wired. And that's another great evidence for the fact that you're supernaturally created. If you were just carbon and dust, why would a lack of purpose matter? You're a spark of incredible creation that relies on purpose for your electricity. So it's so important. And it drives everything you do in life. Ikigai. If we go to the Battle of Okinawa, next slide. This is a shot of the American soldiers trying to take a 70-mile long island. The problem was it was populated by people that came up with the notion of Ikigai. And you imagine trying to take land from someone who knows why they're on planet Earth is way harder than someone who doesn't. So the storm that you're going to have to create. This battle created more PTSD sufferers per 100 people involved in it than any other battle on Earth because they were fighting people who understood their purpose. So today, as Christian folk, if we get purpose wrapped into everything we do, and there's obviously the overarching make disciples of all men that we're driven by, but underneath that, what is your purpose in getting your boots on every day, within your job? Talking to young veterinarians who've lost their way, I drill it down to, you just need to simplify. You're a voice for the voiceless. These animals you represent cannot speak for themselves. You need to go into that consultation room and make that person understand they don't need the Thai holiday, they need to fix the dog's knee. You're there to represent that animal. And just making that shift, you see the lights come on. They understand why they're there. Their ikigai is getting stirred up. So single biggest driver of resilience. If we go to the next slide. 
Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. The rest of this talks about being gloriously and wonderfully made. And this comes down to what we were talking about at the beginning. How does God see you? If God knew you when you were two cells in the womb, he damn sure has a purpose for your life. He's not going to know you and then just leave you on the scrap heap. So for those of you who feel like you don't have a purpose, that is the ultimate in bad self-talk. You need to get rid of that notion and understand that every scar you have, every experience you've been through has been ordered and stepped so that you come out the person that you are. And you're effective, you're supernaturally placed where you are, and you damn sure have a purpose. The single biggest way to neutralize a Christian person is for them to feel a lack of purpose. We all know people who've just lost their way. If we carry on to the next slide. Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Now, this is said by a guy that lived through the Auschwitz death camps. He saw his entire family massacred, but he knew why he was there, and he lived through it. Incredible. Keep going. The second most amazing thing to drive resilience is passion, and this is something that I'm excited about. I'm a passionate person. I like to wear my heart on my sleeve. My wife is a, a much more introverted creature. Uh, if we're at church, she'll try and run to the car and hide and and get on social media or something. She's not the extrovert that I am. And when I trained for my first polar journey, Maddie McNair, one of the toughest women on the planet, first uh, female to get to the North Pole using dogs back in 1985, she said to me, Jeff, I'm so happy with your skill set. I'm so happy with your ability to travel in a polar region. What I'm worried about is I've never met a people person who does well solo. She felt that my passion, my love of life and people was going to be a weakness. She said, at day 10, you are probably going to give up. I said, wow, okay, that's a harsh judgment. So I knew that day 10 was a risk point, And I definitely fought some demons off on that day. By day 20, I didn't care if I never saw anyone again. I got into my group. <laughs> but day 10 to 20 was a tough time. And I just saw her and I understood that she saw my passion as a weakness. But for those of you, you know, there's a certain amount of calories you're going to spend going through your life. Wouldn't you want to do it with excitement and passion? If I go back to a, a moment in our life that I call the voila moment. Go to the next slide. It was um, Sarah ordering some wine in northern Norway from a guy who looked like he just was done. He, did, he wasn't interested. We got the wine delivered with a harumph and it was slammed on the counter. We're like, wow, that was underwhelming. Six weeks later, we're in a French restaurant. The same question, can we have a rosé? This excited young man comes over and he's, he's telling her all about the vineyards, the soil, the air, why this area has the best rosé in the world. Brought a bottle over. Popped it with a loud pop. Everyone in the restaurant looked. And when he found out that Sarah liked it, he slammed it on the table, did a spin, a big flamboyant spin, and yelled out, voila. And we laughed and realized he'd spent probably 10% more calories getting the wine, putting it on the table. But the outcome was one of passion. So now in our business, we ask our vets and our nurses to think of that boy and go, 
you're going to be here from eight till six anyway. Your shift doesn't get shorter if you do it with no passion. In fact, it'll go quicker. And the effect that you have on the people around you is unbelievable. And I look at passion as a boat trying to get through a sluggish sea. You can do it and just chug through, or you can get on the plane and go over the top. And that's what passion does. When you're passionate, you don't feel the pain. You don't feel the aches quite so much, and you drive through. The last big driver of this, actually, there may be a scripture there. Let's go on to the next slide, please. Now, persistence. The last thing that I want to try and get across tonight is if you've got your purpose lined up, you've examined that, and that can take time. Don't panic, especially you young ones, if you don't know your purpose right now. But you need to find a purpose in what you're doing currently. Your overarching purpose can take time. Let's do it with passion. And persistence is just about understanding there will be times in your life where you do get a smackdown. Those times where you feel like, wow, I can't take much more of this. The times when a child is off the rails or the times where you've had a horrible prognosis or diagnosis within the family or your business or your work, whatever it is. Those times where you feel like you're done, you're dusted. It's time to lay on the mat, take a breath, but you have to get to your feet. You have no option. You have supernatural favour on your side, supernatural healing, words of knowledge that make it impossible for you to stay on the mat. So if we go on to the next slide. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So what that scripture tells me is without persistence, we're still a work in progress. So you're not mature and complete if you're going to lay on the mat and suck your thumb. And unfortunately, it's not an option for us. You can do that for a while, figuratively, and there are times to heal, to get better. Let's go on. So this is the incredible thing, that your resilience will happen naturally if we can get these three things in order. So tonight, I think if you look at your supernatural resilience, it's going to come when you meet challenges over the next 12 months. A lot of it will be driven from seeing yourself the way God sees you. And every morning, I practice a little ritual. We go to this slide. This guy is the Spartan within. So he's the warrior, the warrior princess, that in the morning, you're looking at the mirror going, I know my purpose today. I know why I'm putting my boots on in the morning. I'm going to do it with passion. And it doesn't matter how many times I get knocked down today, I'm going to get up. You are all Spartans for Christ in here today. And I think it, it can feel really silly when you first do it. So tomorrow morning, put your Spartan helmet on, look at the mirror. But you'll find over a 21-day period, which is how long the human brain takes to develop a habit, you're going to look at that mirror and laugh and go, come at me. Send me the biggest line you can today, and I will take your head off because I'm a Spartan for Christ. Awesome, guys. So, hey, my next journey. Go next slide. This is the next journey. It's a little tiny sailboat. We're sailing from the Gold Coast next September all the way down to Patagonia and then doing seven journeys in Patagonia, Antarctica, and then all the way up on the Arctic Circle over a two-year period. It's uh, the first time I've teamed up with my son, Kit, so Simon's in support, 
another new breed coming through, young kit. So get on Instagram. This last slide is a merciless plug for you to get on Instagram. We'll do some follow-up journeys. Also, through that, there'll be resilience tips, ways to improve your battle readiness, and a reminder to get your Spartan helmet on every single day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.